1: Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything.
2: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Our guest in this episode is an internationally renowned and awarded expert in the field of engineering. Uh, He's been involved in pioneering research on all sorts of things, things like sheep shearing robots, uh, remote access laboratories... Uh, clearing landmines uh, from war zones, and the list goes on and on. Uh, he's now retired from academia, but uh, has turned his attentions uh, in the time since uh, to becoming a startup entrepreneur. Uh, and we've got so much more to get through. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with James Trevelyan. How are you, James? Fabulous, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I did see a talk of yours that you gave about eight years ago where you boldly started with your line, I have a dream. Uh, and your dream was to end poverty. Uh, Is that still your dream? Definitely. Yeah? How's it going?
3: It's – I have to say it's progressing.
2: Yeah? Yes. You talked a lot about um, efforts uh, in in poorer parts of the world, you know, things like access to water, things like just, I suppose, being able to walk safely through fields that were once littered with landmines. Um, Is that primarily where your your efforts have, have been over the years?
3: Well, certainly landmines was, was one step along the way. Mm. I, I married a, a, a fabulous woman from Pakistan, uh, based here in Australia, but, of course, going to meet her family in Islamabad. Soon found out that Australians were involved in leading the landmine clearance effort in Afghanistan. Right. And so uh, she said, well, you've invented robots for everything. What about clearing landmines? And I said, oh, that's much too difficult, much too difficult. So she got the head of the army at the time, John Sanderson, who was, of course, the governor here. You, many mm. of your listeners would remember. And she got him to twist the other arm. And they marched <laughs> me forwards, sent me off to the Holdsworthy army camp in, in uh, Sydney to learn about landmines. Right. And then uh, I realized that there were opportunities, not with robots, but uh, much simpler much simpler technical advances that that, uh, we can make a bit of a contribution on, things like protective clothing, just tools and equipment. Uh, Some of your listeners would remember that that wonderful movie, The The English Patient, Mm. and in the opening sequence, it shows how uh, that uh, Sikh soldier was using a uh, bayonet, and that's the, that was a state of mind clearance when when I started. Give it
2: a give it a poke with something sharp. Give it
3: a poke with something sharp and and hope that it doesn't hope go for off. The best. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, we helped develop better tools and equipment. Uh, we got some pocket money from Bill Clinton's conscience. <laughs> right. uh, you know, the U.S. government wouldn't sign the landmine ban treaty that was promoted by Princess Diana, and uh, and her efforts, uh, but you know. They did actually spend a lot of money on research and development. Yeah, and um, we applied for some of that money. And in the end, it's one of those things you put in an application. We had twenty-four hours to do it, right, because of the deadline and so on. So I got a lot of help. We put it in and then heard nothing for months. And one of my experiences with bureaucracies is you want you want to get an answer from a bureaucracy, ask for permission for something that they will not give you permission for. <laughs> they will want to say no. Yeah. So I did that. I asked to reproduce some of their their drawings and diagrams and they said, "Oh no, no, we can't give you permission."
2: Diagrams of landmines
3: or I can't remember what yeah, it was at right. the moment. Um but uh you know, the email came back basically saying no, but it gave a telephone number. Oh, good. <laughs> so I rang up this this uh, gentleman in the US Army uh, at, uh, Fort Belvoir in Virginia near Washington. And, uh, I said, look, thank you very much for your email, but do you know anything about these, uh, grants for landmine clearance technologies? He said, no, I don't, but, uh, Charlie does. He's, he's sitting in the next desk. Let me ask him. So Charlie came over and, uh, and I chatted with him for a couple of minutes and he said, look, um, could you could you change your grant to this much? Because we've got this money left over, and we're not quite sure what to spend it on.
2: <laughs> well, I've got it. We got idea. the money a
3: few months later. Wow! So on my my notice board in my office at, at UWA, I had this enlarged, uh, colour uh, reproduction of the first check that we Fantastic. got from the US Defence.
2: I want to ask how much it was for, but I'm. I'm not sure if that's a rude question Earth's or case not. It was about
3: seventy thousand so dollars. <laughs> right, that was good money to get us started.
2: What sure. What does that buy you then, if you're looking to develop new technologies to clear landmines from in, in war zones?
3: Well, it was really interesting. So, so we realised that, uh, you know, most people at the time were developing very sophisticated technology. Yeah, uh, radars, uh, infrared detection devices, and so on. And my experience with that kind of technology, mainly in the defence sector, taught me that. You know, your basic challenge was to find landmines, and and the idea was to to find the little bits of metal associated with them. But they were very tiny bits of metal, and in a battlefield, every time a shell goes off, you get tens of thousands of metal fragments that go everywhere, mm. and that's the real challenge: is sorting out all those metal fragments for the one little one that would indicate a landmine. Mm. And, and the tool that was used were metal detectors. So people said there must be a better way to do it. Mm. We got all this sophisticated technology. But what I realized is that the, the, the false alarms that would give right with a metal detector, they were all correlated. Whatever, you'd use an infrared sensor or radar, they're all going to give very similar signals. And I realized that this, this was not going to be at all easy. So I thought, okay, let's, let's look at the manual process. Let's see if we can improve it. And no one else was doing that, but the key to it was to work with the fellows who were actually doing the mine clearance in Afghanistan? Yeah, and they were all based in Pakistan at the time because Taliban and other people were trying to control Afghanistan. It just yeah. wasn't safe to base things there. Just just for context, so we had access to these deminers and we worked with them directly.
2: Sorry, just sorry to interrupt there in your your flow there, but just for context, you're, you're talking about sort of pre nine eleven. Oh, uh, absolutely. This is yes. this is this back is, in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. Nineteen yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: nineties. Yeah. We started in nineteen ninety six. Okay. And uh, by 1997, 98, we'd set up an organization in Pakistan. Now, of course, the U.S. Defense Department couldn't fund an organization in Pakistan. Mm. <laughs> so they saw us as an opportunity. They sent the money to UWA, and the, we used that money to set up a research, small research center in, in Afghanistan where we employed Afghan miners to work alongside our own technicians. Mm.
0: Uh,
3: and it turned out that there was this wonderful patch of ground alongside one of the main roads in Islamabad, which had just the same characteristics as most of the minefields in Afghanistan. Right. So we were able to try out our techniques there using what was a pretty close representation to a real minefield. You know, many people think that a minefield is like an area of lawn, like the grass outside this building. It's not at all. It's overgrown with all sorts of vegetation because people don't go there. Yes so <laughs> nobody looks after it yeah so it's a real mess to deal with with building rubble and you know rubbish lying around and so on and so forth so we that's that's where we did a lot of our work and, and
2: so if you don't mind me asking what was your secret how did you improve the technology The
3: secret was to work directly with the Afghan D miners. yeah so we had fellows who could talk speak their language work with them directly uh, we would build equipment and try out ideas they would come down from Peshawar which is where they were based mm. and, and try them out give us direct feedback and and that enabled us to to crack many of the some of the issues that that were really troubling the the whole operation so mm. one of them was the uh, the fact that the d would not lie on the ground which was the pre- prescribed way to do it you go to the Australian army they would say you lie on the ground you poke the poke around with your bayonet once you found a where you think there's a landmine. Because if it goes off accidentally, the blast is going to go up. Right. And so that was so, your best
2: chance to yes, be lying on the ground.
3: Be a best chance to be yeah. lying on the ground. But these fellows would squat. Yeah. So when there, was, when there was a blast, you have to remember these landmines, generally speaking, are very small amounts of explosive. So, uh, But if you're squatting, you'll get it in the face.
0: Mm.
3: And there were a few accidents like that. The, so whatever these guys did, Uh, they couldn't get the D-minus to lie on the ground. Mm. So when we worked with the D-minus ourselves, uh, and we had fellows who were speaking to them in Pashto, which was the language that they used, uh, they told us why they wouldn't want to lie on the ground. They Mm. say, we've got these beautiful uniforms. (laughs) Why would we want to get them dirty and lie down with ants and prickly plants and so Mm. on and so forth? Mm. So, whereas the Expat supervisors from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they thought it was something to do with their religion or something like that because they couldn't speak to them directly in their own language. Yeah, yeah. And really it came down to this issue. They said, well, you know, if you're a businessman and you have a suit, you wouldn't lie on the ground. No. But for us, our uniforms are like our suits. Mm. And it's uncomfortable on the ground. It's much hotter. It's much colder when it's in winter. So we prefer to squat. So then we set about saying, well, okay, how do we protect these D-miners if they're squatting? Mm. And so we set about that and produced much more effective protection for them. We managed to – I worked with a fellow who was working in South Africa, originally from Britain, who had figured out how to make the the face visors much more cheaply. They were being charged hundreds of dollars from defense suppliers. We showed how they could be produced for about $50 a pop.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a massive industry, isn't it? The defense industry. (laughs) It can be yes, <laughs> enormous. And I have lots of experience, and it creates of it, of its own. I'm sure you did. Um, do you still go back and and see that work being done now, or is it? I suppose there's been a lot of conflict there since.
3: There has. Mm. Well, of course, what happened after 9 11 was that Afghanistan became a much more difficult place to work for peacetime activities, mm-hmm. and and in essence, most of the deminers I worked with have now left because. Their challenge turned from finding landmines to avoiding being kidnapped mm. and having their gear stolen and so on and so forth. It's a real tragedy. Yeah. So there are still landmines there. There are teams working there. It's much more an Afghanistan-based effort now. It's yep. taken a long time, but, but yes, they're still working, and, I still, yeah, keep and in, I still keep in contact. Plenty
2: more things to look for in the ground that can cause people death and injury too, I imagine. Uh, James, it's fascinating. I, I really want to hear about your sheep shearing robot as well, but we need to take a break. James Trevelyan is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in a moment.
1: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, Eminence engineer uh, James Trevelyan is our special guest uh, in this episode. Uh, James, sheep shearing is uh, an issue that's been in the news a bit lately, primarily because of, I think, travel restrictions and, and there's a, a battle to find people to shear the sheep, to put it simply. Uh, but you were working on sheep shearing robot technology as far back as 1975? That's correct. What was going on in 1975 that saw a need for some sheep shearing robot help?
3: It actually started the year before when uh, some of your older listeners would remember the Whitlam years and an astonishing rate of wage inflation. Right. And the shearers won uh, around a 100% wage rise over about 18 months. Not bad. And that set the wool industry into a panic. Right. Because they realized that if this was going to go on, it just they would consume all the all the money from the wool would be consumed in shearing. Mm. And so uh, there were two uh, or three projects started, one of them by the Southern District's Sheep Research Council here in Western Australia, led by uh, an enigmatic en- engineer-turned-farmer, Sir Norman Lewis, who was actually the nephew of Sir Essington Lewis uh, of BHP. Right. His... His wife, Marjorie, and he set up this research council and brought in some uh, fabulous innovations, which are still with us today. For example, she she spotted the need for selenium as a trace element to improve lambing rates. Mm. And uh, so their interests were extraordinary, and they raised enough money to commission a private company in Britain, a management consultancy, to develop a sheep-shearing robot. It was it wasn't really a robot it was a, it was a mechanized shearing device and it was brought here to western australia uh to dem- be demonstrated and they needed someone to evaluate its performance as an independent observer and i just happened to pick up the phone on the right day <laughs> so i w- went out to Muresk agricultural college where it would have been about 45 degrees inside yep. the
0: shed yeah
3: they had uh, large fans blowing at the electronics equipment, which hadn't been designed to work in that temperature. And they discovered to their horror that Australian sheep have much longer necks right. than British sheep. So the whole thing had to be cut apart, extra bits inserted and welded together just to cope with the different sheep. Right. Uh, and I watched in amazement as it, it sheared, sheared wool. but it was So the
2: sheep would sort of be put into a position and this machine would... Presumably, start at the head and then work its way back. And they were
3: they were put on a canvas cradle. Actually, the machinery has been exhibited at times at the Williams Woolshed, right, uh, just south of Perth. If you drop in there, you might see it one day. And ask them about it if it's not on display. Mm. Uh, but the the I was amazed because they had not thought of using a computer to control this machine. So it was incredibly inflexible in what it could do. Mm. And uh, then a, f- a, f- a couple of weeks later, I flew over to Geelong to see another machine that had been developed by CSIRO there. Again, uh, amazing. It was made from windscreen wiper motors. Can you imagine? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and screwdrives. But it, it, fu- performed, it performed far better. Yeah. So uh, with uh, the professor of mechanical engineering at the time, uh, David Allen Williams, uh, we put in a proposal to say, look, you know, this really should be done by computer-controlled machinery. Uh, it's not sensible. It was just—it was amazing to me that they didn't think of doing that. But that was our opportunity.
2: Okay. And, and in, as I understand, you worked on it for for some time. How we did. How good did it get?
3: We actually we, we were able to shear sheep completely automatically with the fleece in one piece. And uh, the video of that is on YouTube for any of your listeners who are interested. Yeah. Just look up robot sheep shearing. I reckon there'd
2: be a few people with some sheep that need shearing right now who'd be quite interested in, in seeing that change. Well, yeah, we did that in
3: 1989. <laughs> and uh, people you know, said, oh, look, you know, it's, it's actually – it took you 15, 20 minutes to shear a whole sheep. But that wasn't the point. The point was that the actual shearing operations, if they were properly automated and put together, yeah. uh, that machinery would have shorn sheep. Quite, quite respectably, mm. uh, and it's not a question of how long it takes compared with a shearer. It's a question of the cost. What's yeah. the cost of the machinery yeah. and the supporting supporting people around it? Uh, that video, of course, has been online ever since. And since we demonstrated that machinery, the shearers have been so well behaved from an <laughs> industrial relations point of view. I bet. And you know, um, I was in Canberra a, a few years back. And one of the nominees for Australian of the Year was a an Australian Workers' Union shearers organiser. Right. And uh, he told me that he was he was actually fascinated to meet me on that occasion because he said, we've always wondered who it was that, that managed to get robots to shear sheep so well. <laughs> he said, we really respect that machine because we know that if we put one step out of line, uh, that they'll bring in the machines overnight. Yeah. So... Uh, so
2: you were almost part of an in, some, an industrial campaign in a way, then. It was, James. So see, look, were you bought off? Did you have to? Did you have to sort of put the machine back in the cupboard for your for your silence? Or
3: no, no, no. <laughs> no. You know, uh, one of the one of the challenges in working on that project with the Australian Wool Corporation, who were leading, was paying paying yeah. the, for the development. Uh, and it was a huge research and development project. It was the largest research project at UWA for many years. Mm. We had an annual budget of up to $2 million, a team of 25 people. Um, After it was all finished, well, it wasn't actually. During the project, we had a lot of frustrations because every time we faced a major technical issue, we told the War Corporation, we should really be working with a manufacturer, a robot manufacturer on this. Because if you're serious about developing this technology, you really need to work with shearing contractors, mm. robot manufacturers, because you can't just easily take a piece of research and then suddenly commercialize it. Yeah. But they wouldn't do this. Every time we suggested this, they shied away and said, no, 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 no. we'll think about that another time. Yeah. So a few years after we finished that project, uh, I was actually invited to a reunion of War corporation board members uh, here in Perth. And I sat down with a couple of them, and I said to them, look, the only way I can really understand your decision-making process is that you had no intention of commercializing this technology. Yeah, All you wanted was something to keep the shearers in line. Yeah, And they said, you're absolutely right, <laughs> but nobody actually said it like that at any <laughs> meeting. But yes, that was the agenda. Wow. So, you know, the technology is there. The real hidden issue in the wool industry is workers' compensation. Yeah. Shearers don't get... The kind of compensation it's back-breaking for back-breaking work, isn't it? Look, it's it's so far outside occupational health and safety guidelines, mm. which are rigorously enforced mm. across Australia, except in the shearing industry.
2: Right.
0: Yeah.
3: If those guidelines were enforced as they really should be, so that the Australian community is not, if you like, the buck where the buck stops,
0: because
2: mm.
3: it's it's the public health system that has to pick mm. up the costs.
2: On the issue, of though, of, of replacing human labour, has that come up many times in your career where you've found yourself developing technologies that could ultimately replace the work of a, of a person and, you know, for want of a better phrase, you take a job away from a person and stick it in the hands of a machine instead? Uh, and that comes with a certain level of criticism and, and, and backlash at times with powerful unions and the like behind them. Has that come up much in your career?
3: That's that's the popular impression. Yeah, but the reality is actually the reverse, because the unions themselves know what the work is really like, and on almost every occasion, the unions have been far more supportive of automation technology than the business owners, because they know that that ultimately the only way to maintain these industries is by productivity improvement. Mm. And and so they say we should be forward-looking. We should use automation because without automation, we won't have an industry, we won't have jobs. Yeah. So I've I've always found the unions to be far more progressive in their thinking than than the the business owners. Yeah. Who have to be dragged k- kicking and screaming mm. to to take the the step of introducing this automation and robotics, something that's now taken for granted in the mining industry.
2: If I'd have said to you in 1975 that here in 2020, a few years on. <laughs> 45 years on, we'd still be shearing sheep by hand. Would you have believed me?
3: Um, I would have accepted that it was quite possible. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, it, it is a political decision. You know, this workers' compensation issue is is really a question of politics. Yeah. And it's a question of what, you know, why do we have regulations that we enforce in one industry and not in another? Yeah. So if you enforce those regulations, you would need robots overnight. Yeah. So, yes, I would have expected robots to be used. I'm mm. surprised that that this issue has been allowed to go on as long as it has.
2: Yeah, well, politics is a s- slow-moving beast at times, isn't it? It can be. <laughs> <laughs> James Trevelyan is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Uh, after the break, I want to ask you about the work you've done in, uh, in bringing water uh, to people in impoverished parts of the world uh, as well because it's another fascinating subject that you've been heavily uh, involved in. But we'll get into that right after we take a break. Back with more in a moment.
1: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 br brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest in this episode is uh, engineer James Trevelyan. Uh, James, you've, you've done a lot uh, over your many decades involved in engineering on a pro- professional level, but what were you like as a kid? Were you, were you that kid that just, you know, if you got a new bike for Christmas, you wanted to pull it apart and see how it all worked?
3: I don't know about uh, pulling it apart, but definitely I was into model trains and Meccano. Mm. You know, the the, oh, the metal equivalent of Fisher Technic yeah. and uh, Lego Technic. Mm. So I was definitely... It's, it's it's
2: it's very much back in vogue now, the Meccano.
3: Yeah. Uh, mm. And I, I used to really enjoy building things. Mm. Uh, I built a model aeroplane, which I'm, uh, my sister sat on. So <laughs> I thought something more durable was important. <laughs> um I don't think she deliberately did that, but (laughs) definitely taught me it had to be made of metal of something durable. So I was into Meccano, building things, building models, getting them to work. uh, I really enjoyed that.
2: Yeah. I was surprised to hear again another um, uh, statement you made or question you posed in your, um, your TEDx talk that you did several years ago was that you'd been asking what is it that engineers do, which I found a little surprising given that you'd, spent a great part of your life doing what engineers do, but um, have you found the answer to that question?
3: I've found a lot of answers, yes. Yeah. So look, that started with water. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you said you wanted to talk about water supply. Mm. So I was in Islamabad and we'd been working on landmines, uh, but my mother-in-law was really keen on helping women in villages around Islamabad <clears throat> earn an in, a living independently. Mm-hmm. So we set up a sewing school and went there after a year and found that the machines had not been touched. The dust on the covers showed you that those sewing machines had not been touched. And she spent a day and a half, so, talking to local women to try and find out why it was. What was their reluctance to to touch those sewing machines? The answer turned out to be so simple. They were spending six to eight hours a day carrying water in buckets about a kilometer from the nearest supply, just to keep their families alive and their animals on the most basic supply of water. They were actually part of the Islamabad water supply scheme, but oh. no water ever came out of the pipes that was drinkable. And that led me on to try and figure out what was going on here. I had a, a, a really transformative experience. When we visited another village, we, we started a program to install water pumps yeah. in villages and particularly for schools. Can you imagine a high school without water to use the toilets?
2: In a, in a hot part of the world, too. Yeah.
3: And this, this high school was actually located in a place called Cool Water. Water. <laughs> you know, it was unbelievable. And 20 kilometers from the seat of government in Islamabad. But I realized it was no reflection on the government. They were trying their best. Yeah. And it all had to do with, with engineers. And I was really struggling to understand why with water supply, which is a relatively simple technology, you know... And it's not classified either. We don't we don't keep it secret.
0: Mm.
3: Why it was that engineers in Islamabad could not produce a, dr- a safe drinking water supply like we can here in Perth or in, in anywhere else in Australia? So I had an instinct that it was something to do about the way that engineers worked, mm. because my hair had gone grey as a result of working with local engineers trying to build our prototype equipment for landmine clearance. Mm. I found it an immensely frustrating experience. And I couldn't, I couldn't actually understand why. It was something to do with their practical skills. So I thought, well, you know, here is a question of fundamental significance. And here I, I can do some research. So I interviewed engineers in Pakistan, not only my own engineers, but when engineers working in water supply, in the electricity, manufacturing. And I thought, well, this would be easy. i just interview them and then go back to Perth and study all the de- all the data that would have been accumulated around the world on what engineers do mm. and figure out what the differences are. Well, over a period of about five years of struggle and searching the literature, we re- came to the conclusion that there was really no understanding about what it was that engineers really do. Mm. And there I was, working in an engineering school, teaching it. <laughs> But all the time, I instinctively knew that what I was teaching was not what engineers really do in practice. that was That was nagging at me. Right. so we so we we started this research program, and one of those strange coincidences, on a visit to Stanford University, I found that the the robotic specialists with whom I'd been working on and off for years were just across the corridor from a group that had all the time been trying to understand the same question what do engineers really do? And uh, it was an unbelievable coincidence that I'd walked past the door so many times without realising what they were doing behind it. And my robotics colleagues had no idea either. Yeah, That's the way universities are. We yeah. really don't know what each other are doing. <laughs> so, yes, in I the end... I think some like it that way too, don't they? <laughs> so, yes, we filled a lot of gaps in understanding what engineers do. And, of course, one of the first challenges when you talk to engineers and you say, I want to understand what you do, is that many engineers will say something like this. You say, oh, why are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> because I hardly ever do any engineering. And I say, well, okay. So what is it that you're doing when you're doing engineering? Oh, design, calculations, that sort of stuff. The kind of stuff we learned in university. So I said, well... What about all the rest of the stuff? Oh, just meetings, administration, paperwork, you know, all that rubbish. You know, all that non-engineering stuff. Mm. You know, I was never trained to do that. And I said, well, why don't you hire an admin assistant to do all that paperwork for you? And then you could focus on the engineering. Oh, yeah, but then you need the engineering knowledge to do it. You can't just hire someone. I said, so it is engineering work. Yeah, but it's not real engineering, if you know what I mean. Mm. So this is a fundamental issue in engineering around the world, that engineers regard most of what they do as not engineering, and therefore there's no need to learn how to do it. And so therefore most engineers could actually do it a lot better if they understood it. And that's been the object of the research, Mm. is to provide a roadmap, a vocabulary even, terminology, so that engineers can understand that what they do is real engineering and how to do it better.
0: Yeah,
2: so how- That's
3: been the challenge. You see, along the way, I realized something. Uh, this transformative experience I'll take you back to. I was in this village where we'd installed a water pump. And, and a family really wanted to sh- give me morning tea. So they took me into their home. And they proudly showed me the water pump that they'd installed. This was a very poor family. Mm. They had paid $4,000 for a water pump. for a pump. They had to get a well drilled through 100 meters of hard rock to get down to the water. And I I couldn't understand why they had spent so much money to install their own water pump until I came across economics theory, which explains the value of time. And it's the same theory that we use here in Australia to figure out whether we should build a new freeway. Yeah, You know, how much time is Life going to cost. be saved and what's that, what's that time worth to people? So I used that theory and figured out that, that thousand, those thousands of dollars spent on a water pump made sense because the women did not have to spend all day going backwards and forwards to the well that was a kilometer away. Yeah, And then I understood that that water is so incredibly expensive in real economic terms. Mm. You know, women could be doing so much more Productive things with their time if they didn't have to exhaust themselves carrying water. And I figured out that if you look at it in cold hard facts, in equivalent currency terms, they are paying something like thirty to fifty US dollars for a thousand liters of water.
2: A thousand liters of water. thousand liters of water. And what what did we what pay, pay that for a... that
3: in Perth? We paid Good three or four dollars maximum. Is that right? Yes. So here are the poorest people in the world paying exorbitant amounts of money, real money in terms of their their time and labor, Mm. for the most basic commodity without which we cannot survive. Yeah. And I realized here was an answer for the poverty that is so endemic in so many countries. Yeah. It's all to do with engineering because it's engineering that provides us with affordable water. That's what C.Y. O'Connor did when he built the pipeline to Kalgoorlie. Mm. You go back at the records and see what people were actually paying for water before that pipeline was constructed. It was the same order of magnitude.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that
3: pipeline transformed everything in Kalgoorlie and the entire state of Western Australia. And still working today. It's still working today. Yeah. So so C.Y. O'Connor realized the economic imperative Mm. of providing clean, safe drinking water. Mm. But the challenge was, how did he manage to do it? What was different about his engineering? from engineering in countries like India, Pakistan, even China today. Mm. And that's what that's been the real question at the heart of mm. my research. And it all comes down in the end to collaboration. Yeah. Engineers, all that stuff that the non-engineering work that engineers complain about is actually all about collaboration. Yeah, Because as engineers, we don't build anything. There I was as a young a boy learning to build things with my hands. But as engineers, we don't have time to do that. You know, we're good with intellectual work, calculations, foreseeing the future and figuring out how to get it done. Mm. There are far more people with far more capable hands than us who actually do the real building. Work. <laughs> yeah. But without that collaboration. It doesn't happen. Right, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Or it's just so much more difficult. Yeah. And of course, you've also got to pe- get the people with money to collaborate as well. Yeah. well we all yeah, have to that. work together. Yeah. And that turns out to be far more difficult in many different cultures. Yeah. There are fascinating issues, mm. you know, language gaps, uh, understanding gaps, cultural issues. And it's these factors that make engineering so much more expensive, mm. which is why you will find in the developing world, typically productivity is five times less than it is in a country like Australia. Mm. That's why everything is actually so expensive when it seems to be cheap. You'd think it was cheap in India and Pakistan,
2: and I thought it was going to be cheap. Relatively to them, though, no, it's not. Yeah. When
3: you ask for the same materials, the same quality, the same durability, the same design, it's far more expensive, yeah. which is why, of course, China has to subsidize, India has to subsidize, and that's why development is held back. So that's why I'm very excited about these results, mm. yeah. that by understanding the way engineering works, we can transform the developing world.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm glad after all this time you've been able to answer that question. Thank you. <laughs> we need to take a break. After that, though, I want to ask you what you've been doing since uh, you retired from academia and uh, then entered uh, into the world of, of startups. I did. And, uh, and close comfort uh, in particular. We'll hear all about that right after we take a break. Back with more in a moment.
1: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 br Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, James Trevelyan is our special guest. Uh, James, after a long and distinguished career uh, in engineering academia, you gave it away about uh, four or five years ago. Uh, do you miss it? Was it a, a big call to make?
3: I didn't miss it at all because I had so many other things I wanted to do. Um, and uh, one of those was my air conditioning invention, mm-hmm. which I wanted to commercialize.
2: Yeah, so this is Close Comfort. This, this is, is your comfort. your startup.
3: Yes. So, yeah. so this the story goes back to the landmines work and, and the water work because there I was in Islamabad, and one of the one of the most attractive parts of Islamabad, apart from my wife's family, to me was the mangoes. The mangoes <laughs> in Pakistan are so delicious. But to get them, you have to be there in what, May and June. What's so What's so
2: good about them? I re, I thought our mangoes were pretty good.
3: It's the taste, Tim. Yeah, it's the taste. Uh, once you've <laughs> tasted them, you realise you can't go back. Uh, but the ca- <laughs> maybe I catch. shouldn't have one
2: then. So <laughs> everything else will be inferior.
3: There's a catch. The temperature is typically uh, forty five degrees during the day, and uh, at night time, without air conditioning, it'll be about forty degrees in your bedroom. And uh, because of the uncontrolled spread of air conditioning, uh, the power supply grid in Pakistan just couldn't cope. Right. So they started switching off the power at regular for regular, in, in a rotating schedule. And so there I was at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, 40-degree heat, sweat running down my nose, the air conditioner thudded to a halt, no ceiling fan, no light. And I was just thinking to myself, if only I just had a breath of fresh air, I could sleep. Fresh, cool air on my face, that's all Mm. I would need. So I set about a challenge, which was to produce an air conditioner which would do that for me and run on a battery through the power cuts. And when I finally took one, a working prototype to Pakistan, probably about 10 years later, 2013, I demonstrated it. And people said to me, wow, that is incredible just the idea that you would not have to wake up through these power cuts.
0: Yeah.
2: You
3: know, you imagine sleeping yeah. through the summer and you get woken up every couple of hours and you've, you, you, you'd never get a good night's sleep. No. Um, unless you have a generator, which is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Um, so there I was. I had this this prototype. And the first thing people asked me was, said, how much would it cost? And I had no idea. Yeah. So I turned the question around and said, how much would you pay for it? <laughs> And I was blown away by the answer. It was far more than I expected. Mm. And I thought, maybe there's a commercial proposition here. But you know, it's, And that struck me because I realized that providing air conditioning to a couple of billion people across South Asia, maybe another billion people across Southeast Asia, could transform their economies just, just like water supply. Water mm. supply is important, but mm. so is air conditioning because when you don't that. sleep for months at a time, you can't do any useful work, right? That's why product. one of the reasons why productivity is so low. So I saw this as, as a means of changing that. But I'd learned that good ideas only spread because people can make a bit of money by supplying them. It's like yeah. books, mm. you know, booksellers and so yep. on and so forth. So it had to be commercial. It wasn't a case of just simply having an aid project or something like that because the demand was so huge. So here was the possibility of a commercial product which could transform lives for so many people. Yeah. And that's been my dream. And, of course, it's incredibly valuable elsewhere. People have started buying it in Australia, Singapore. We're now in Indonesia. So that, that's been a wonderful journey. And that's that's one of the reasons why I left UWA, because okay. I was Just really to... struck by the importance of doing this.
2: So the, the, the battery technology, it, it's literally a battery-powered air conditioning. Yeah, kit.
3: it's not the battery technology. Yeah. Because the, the batteries are readily available. Mm. The technology is how we focus the cooling where it's needed. Right. And that's the trick. The conventional air conditioners are incredibly expensive to run because they spend most of the energy cooling down bricks and concrete, not the people. So the idea is to focus the cooling on the people. We're the we're the ones that need the cooling. Mm. I've never yet met a brick that complains <laughs> when it's too hot. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> no. So the trick is how to focus the cooling, yeah. rather than spread it around. Okay. And that's where we. That's the technology we developed.
2: So so when am I going to get to taste one of those Pakistani mangoes? Uh, you- you'll have
3: to come to Pakistan with me. That's the only You'll way. need our air conditioners. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and and. and for the future going forward, is this is I mean, is this your full time uh, job? Is this what you devote all your I'm, time to? I'm
3: still to? writing about engineering because I have this dream of improving engineering practice around yeah. the world. So I'm just finishing yeah. a new book, but but air conditioning is part of that because I think you know the credibility of, of commercializing a product and and getting it out into the world is also part of that equation. Yeah, and it's also a big issue in climate change. Maybe many of your listeners, of course, we all know about what, what's happening in climate change. We feel it here in Australia. But if uh, several billion people across South Asia adopt the kind of air conditioning technologies that we have today, calculations show that we get an extra half degree of global warming at least just from that alone. Yeah. So we need new air conditioning technology. And the challenge is that it has to work in existing buildings. We have to get our emissions down to zero by 2050. The IPCC has been quite unequivocal about that. And air conditioning is a major source of emissions. Uh, But we don't have time or the resources to rebuild every building on the planet. Mm. So the challenge is, with a warming climate, is to find ways of keeping people cool in a way which is not going to harm the environment. And and above all, has to be within the foreseeable amount of energy that Mm. we can provide. And that's why I'm very excited about this technology. Yeah, because we've developed something here in Perth, in Western Australia, which could solve this problem globally.
2: Yeah, can I ask uh, to finish off on a, a more philosophical question? Uh, people often talk about uh, uh, the future and robotics and artificial intelligence as something to be feared. I uh, mean, you know, even Stephen Hawking made comments along those lines uh, uh, in recent years. You know, towards the end of his uh, his life. Are we worrying about it too much? Yes. Is it, is it here to help us or could it be a hindrance to us? Look,
3: artificial intelligence as we know it today is simply another way of programming computers. Mm. That's all it is. It's just a fancy name for computer programming. And I know I'll have a lot of, uh, of my former colleagues who get, might get upset about that. But I had a f- wonderful conversation with a philosopher at UWA who looked at my sheep-sharing robot and said, you know, that's not really artificial intelligence. I will only accept that you have something which is artificially intelligent if it will deliberately lie to me in order to manipulate my behavior. (laughs) And on that grounds, the things that we label as artificial intelligence today, I prefer to call artificial incompetence. (laughs) You know, we still don't have artificial intelligence that can figure out what's safe to sit on. Mm. That can look at an object and say, can I safely sit on that? Mm. So it's it's really useful for speeding up access to information. We've generated so much information, and so much of it is rubbish that we do need artificial intelligence to help us find the good stuff. Yeah, no question about it. And that artificial intelligence is very just as another form of com- programming computers. Yeah. Uh, but you know, for your listeners, I, I'd really recommend reading a, a wonderful book, *The Emperor's New Mind*, which will explain why you know, we're still a long way off from genuine artificial intelligence. And as I said, you know, if artificial intelligence means machines that will deliberately lie to us in order to manipulate our behavior, I think we ought to guard against that and Mm. be very cautious. But we're a long way from that. We don't have to be worried for the foreseeable future, in my opinion.
2: Thank you for putting my mind at ease. Thank you. Pleasure. James, we could talk for hours, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of your story. It's been fascinating.
3: It's been a pleasure, Tim.
2: Uh, You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR in this episode with the engineer, James Trevelyan. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story.
1: When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So we doubled it. Chicken and Maccas, together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30 a.m. for a limited
0: time only.